Welcome to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson, and I'm joined by MNN's Bill Werner, Tasha Radel, and Mike Grimm. We're going to delve into what's going on in the North Star State. If it matters in Minnesota, we've got it covered. This week, a local political analyst weighs in on President Trump's first week, a new U of M report sheds light on immigrants in the state workforce, and a fresh preview of the 2019 NCAA Final Four in Minneapolis. But first, Governor Mark Dayton delivered his State of the State address this week, but it was eclipsed by a frightening moment nearly at its end. But despite that awful cost... Get him to the ground. Get him to the ground, please. Scott, the governor fainted, striking his forehead on the podium. Lieutenant Governor Tina Smith, Secretary of State Steve Simon, and others nearby broke the governor's fall. Several members of the legislature with medical experience attended to him. Anytime something like that happens, it's just serious and everything stops. And we're all one Minnesota and we're all here and we're all praying for him. He said Senate Majority Leader Paul Gazelka. It certainly shakes you up a little bit. Uh, I certainly uh, don't always agree with Governor Dayton, but I, I certainly do respect him and uh, he's a very good person, and I think we'll, I know we'll put our political differences aside for a while, and we got to get him back to health, we got to get him back real strong, because we've got some good debates coming forward. That's Republican Representative Greg Davids from Preston. Several minutes after the governor collapsed, he stood up. That prompted loud applause and cheers, and he walked with assistance into the back room of the Minnesota House. Dayton returned to the governor's residence, where he was checked out by EMTs and was not hospitalized. Dayton was back at the Capitol the next day to present his two-year budget plan, but questions about his health overshadowed everything. I take it very seriously. I mean, I have an obligation to the people of Minnesota, and that's why I'm in the process of scheduling for further tests down in Mayo this afternoon. Uh, the speech was too long. I learned that lesson. <laughs> I asked Hugo, my four-year-old grandson, uh, the way home, uh, would you, what do you, did, you think, uh, did you think Grandpa had a good speech? And he said, no. <laughs> but then, after some joking with the media, another revelation. I will, though, in the interest of full disclosure, say that I learned uh, last week I had a biopsy that I do have prostate cancer. And it's uh, good news is, that, as they say, it's their, one of their best success stories. And it, by all indications, has not ex uh, in, ex extended beyond the prostate. The governor was asked, with all the medical problems he's having, is he up to the job of being Minnesota governor? I think I am. And if I don't, I won't continue, but I believe I am. Uh, I've said when I had my hip surgery, there are no brain cells in my hip, and there are no, no brain cells in my prostate either. <laughs> Well, an exam at Mayo Clinic concluded the governor's fainting spell was, as clinic officials put it, situational and related to standing for a long time. They say it could have been due also to possible dehydration. Well, before the governor went to Rochester for that exam, Dayton rolled out his two-year state budget proposal, $1.2 billion in spending increases, as the state expects a $1.4 billion budget surplus. The governor says his priorities... Education and transportation and then doing what we have to do to meet the increased uh, needs for human services and jobs. You know, all this is about setting a foundation for economic growth. What the uh, state government can do more than anything, and has done in the past Minnesota, to encourage uh, businesses to locate and expand here is provide a well-educated workforce, a sound infrastructure, and then run state government on a balanced basis. 
Republicans say the dollar amount in the governor's budget is too large. House Majority Leader Joyce Pepin says it's wrong to think about the state budget in terms of what percentage should it be increased. We should look at all the spending that we do in state government and figure out what's working and what's not working and make sure we're, we're spending those taxpayer dollars in the most wise uh, manner possible. Governor Dayton argues additional spending for pre-kindergarten, K-12 schools, higher education, transportation, and other areas is a necessary investment in Minnesota's future. As for tax provisions in his proposed budget... I have proposed some tax reductions focused on middle-income families for child care tax credit and the like. The federal conformity reduced uh, taxes for middle-income families. But I, my, my higher priority is to make these uh, investments that have paid off in the past for Minnesota and given our business community the reason to expand here. Senate Republican Majority Leader Paul Gazelka responds. If you look back to the tax bill last year, I was on that conference committee, and, and we had tax relief for multiple groups, uh, small businesses, uh, farmers, student loans got some relief. Uh, uh, everywhere we looked, we were providing tax relief, which is why you had 89% of legislators support it. Um, and so, again, we're going to be looking at tax relief that's, that's broad, that impacts a lot of people. We want our businesses to do well. Uh, the tax structure and regulations that we uh, inflict sometimes upon them, we need to look at to say, you know, are we, are we helping them succeed so that they can create the jobs that all of us want? But it really isn't just that. It was, you look at the tax bill last year, there was multiple people that were impacted by it. Among a number of proposals that the governor is making to increase education spending is $75 million to expand pre-kindergarten programs. House Speaker Kurt Dowd on that. We see uh, a little different priority in, in maybe the, the scholarship approach where a parent can choose, do I want to go to a, a public school because a two-and-a-half-hour option works for my family, or do I want to go to a, 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 a private uh, education facility that that might have or a, or a parochial education facility that might have a daycare uh, coupled on either end of it because that works better for their family. The governor responds he is open to scholarships but if there are areas of the state where quality child care is not available which is the case uh, then the, the schools become the, the best source of, of early childhood education. The governor did not include in the budget proposal he rolled out this week but it's clear he's still thinking about it a gas tax increase to fund transportation projects. He says 10 cents per gallon would cost the average Minnesota driver just $75 a year. That money will buy better, better roads, better highways, uh, less congestion. It's not even the you know, Cadillac version. It's, it's uh, one that will maintain existing highway conditions and make some strategic improvements and expansions. The governor told Republicans it's imperative the legislature act on transportation funding this year. If they don't want to adopt my proposal, then they need to come up with their own. But it has to be real funding is dedicated to transportation for every year for the next decade. House Speaker Dowd responds Republicans already made a workable proposal that does not increase the gasoline tax. You can't keep wringing money out of the economy and increasing taxes. And one of the most troubling things, I think, in this budget are the tax increases. Um, you know, one of the most regressive taxes that you can put on Minnesotans is a gas tax. And so, Scott, the debate that began about this time in 2016, well, actually much before that, that debate continues at the Minnesota Capitol. And we'll see if that debate comes to an end in 2017. Thank you for that report, Bill. More Minnesota Matters after this. As a young teenage boy, I didn't even know what autism was. How do you even spell that? A few years later, I heard that a friend's cousin's son had been diagnosed with autism. I still wasn't sure what that really meant. 
When I went to college, my roommate's brother had autism. When I moved to the city for work, my best friend called me and told me his son had been diagnosed with autism. We were both in shock. I still remember the day I walked into the house and saw that look on my wife's face. I knew something was wrong. I'll never forget how I felt when she said, our son has autism. Autism is getting closer to home. Today, one in 110 children is diagnosed with autism. That's a 600% increase in the last 20 years. Learn the signs at autismspeaks.org. Early diagnosis can make a lifetime of difference. Brought to you by Autism Speaks and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson. We're moving past the first full week of Donald Trump's presidency and, to say the least, it's been a whirlwind. I recently spoke with Carleton College political analyst Stephen Shear to help put it all in perspective. I'm curious, just generally speaking, what stands out to you so far in that first week? Well, I'd say it's been a turbulent first week, but I'm not terribly surprised about that because Donald Trump has been a turbulent public figure <laughs> for a while. His campaign was certainly turbulent. A lot of surprises, a lot of arguments with the press, uh, a lot of executive actions. You know, people seem to be somewhat disappointed or have a lot of scrutiny for the media these days. So, I mean, does he, does he have a good chance of winning this particular war right now? Well, I think the uh, the media is definitely on the defensive, and what's happening this week is that the White House is doing so many different things on so many fronts that it's very hard for the media to keep up. I mean, what controversy and what executive action do they want to focus on? And I think this is part of the Trump strategy, is to keep moving and uh, keep the media on the defensive. Does it hurt him in, in some way when he tends to focus on things like crowd sizes or uh, the legitimacy of the, the vote for the election that he won? Or is that something that isn't necessarily something he's perpetrating, but that the media is keeping alive? Well, I think Trump supporters don't object to his uh, uh, sometimes questionable statements. They sort of dismiss them. But I think the problem for Trump is he needs to make new friends in the public and convince them to come to his side. And I think behavior where he challenges things that are generally accepted to be factually true doesn't really help his credibility with those people who are not his supporters. And, Professor, you just mentioned a moment ago he's been signing several executive orders and memorandums, uh, you know, in what appears to be sort of a dismantling of many of President Obama's policies, including TPP, the Affordable Care Act. Uh, how much of an impact does that have on the country, and, and how legitimately, how fast can these changes take effect? Well, I think the White House is trying to make as many changes as quickly as possible and sort of grab political momentum this way. I mean, he has frozen federal hiring. He's frozen the creation of additional federal regulations. He has limited communications with the public from parts of the bureaucracy. He has canceled the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Uh, He has... uh, facilitated permitting for two controversial pipelines. He is uh, working on immigration executive orders that will certainly be controversial. Other than that, not much is happening. 
Well, and he also has a short <laughs> list of Supreme Court nominees. What are the implications of that? Oh, that's huge. Uh, he's got over 100 federal court nominations to make, and this will be an important long-term legacy for him or for any president. Uh, he'll be announcing his Supreme Court nominee uh, next week. It will probably be a younger person who is very much in the mold of the now-deceased Associate Justice Antonin Scalia, uh, and that will be a very big change from the sort of judicial approach favored by the Obama administration. How much of uh, how much of a, a wall, for lack of a better term, do you think the Democrats are going to put up uh, against that nomination, considering the stalled nomination of President Obama before he left office? Uh, that's a very good question. Uh, I think it's going to be a tough nomination because you need 60 votes in the Senate to break a filibuster, which is unlimited debate. And that requires the vote of eight Democratic senators to allow the nomination to go forward. So it's not at all clear that those eight votes are available. And it's also not clear that Trump, uh, <laughs> that Trump's image with the Democratic Party is going to help him to get those eight votes. And how would you rate the success so far of his cabinet uh, nominees? Uh, we've had several confirmation hearings over the course of the last couple of weeks. How how do you think that's going for the president? Well, I think the cabinet nominees are a mixed bag. Some of them are quite able, and some are facing ethical controversies that may dog them uh, through the confirmation process. The other thing to note is that uh, the Trump presidency is starting a bit slowly on the appointments front. He's got a lot of appointments to make, and he needs to pick up the pace of the sub-cabinet appointments in order to get his administration moving full speed. You know, we had the uh, the big march last week uh, across the country. It seems as though there's a lot of divisiveness throughout the country. It's one of the big things that people are talking about. As a student of politics and, and history, can you put that a little bit in perspective uh, for me and the listeners. Uh, how much trouble are we in right now? Well, we're a very divided country, and I think that's going to persist for, for the foreseeable future because uh, there are just big cultural and political differences. You know, when you have a big country of 330 million people, racially and ethnically diverse, regionally diverse, religiously diverse, you're going to have a few disagreements. <laughs> And it's a very difficult country to govern, particularly given our Constitution, which divide power, divides powers all over the place. So whoever tries to run this uh, uh, country from the White House faces an awful lot of challenges. Having said that, I think Trump's uh, style is deliberately provocative and divisive, and he thinks that that's the way to uh, govern successfully. And I think he adds a little more fuel to the fire in just the way he conducts his office every, every day. Professor, are there any things looking forward uh, that we haven't discussed yet that you'll keep an eye on? Oh, yeah. Uh, we've got a budget proposal that has to come out within the next two months, which will be uh, the uh, priority blueprint for where the money goes and where the taxes change. And that will be a huge agenda impact of the new Trump presidency, and that's something that bears careful watching. Well, that's something we'll probably reconnect with you on uh, in the future within uh, the next couple months. Professor, thanks as always for your time and your perspective. I appreciate it. Thank you. Minnesota Matters will return after this. Technology moves at the speed of innovation, and today... 
That's lightning fast. So when you get your hands on the latest tech, don't forget to do the right thing with your old devices. Recycle them. The Consumer Electronics Association and its members are making recycling your old tech device as easy as purchasing new ones. Just go to greenergadgets.org, type in your zip code, and you'll instantly find the responsible recycling location closest to your home. You'll also find lots of tips to simplify your recycling, like asking the store where you buy your new TV if they'll haul away your old one. Television sets, video game consoles, smartphones, tablets, they're all recyclable. Don't let them clog up your local landfill. Just visit greenergadgets.org. You're sharp enough to get the latest tech tools into your home. Now be responsible enough to get your old devices to the recycler. That's greenergadgets.org. Sometimes a simple idea can be developed into something big that can change the world. This is Katy Perry. In fourth grade, my music teacher helped me make a vision board. It was a collage that represented all of my hopes and aspirations in music. But what if my teacher didn't have the supplies we needed to make our collages? What if I never got the chance to learn and express my dreams? Unfortunately, that's the reality our teachers face every day. They're forced to spend their own money, sometimes just to keep the classroom running. That's why I'm teaming up again with Staples for Students to donate $1 million to DonorsChoose.org, the charity that helps teachers get what they need to bring learning to life for students. DonorsChoose.org has helped fulfill more than 700,000 classroom projects benefiting more than 18 million students. It's an idea that's changing the world. It's easy to help. Donate in Staples stores or learn more at staplesforstudents.org. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. A University of Minnesota research report released this week shows the future strength of Minnesota's economy depends on attracting and integrating international immigrants into the workforce. MNN's Tasha Radel has more. That's right, Scott. The report entitled Immigrants in Minnesota's Workforce paints a troubling picture for the growth of the state's economy. Here to discuss the findings is Bill Blazer, Senior Vice President of Public Affairs and Business Development with the Minnesota Chamber of Commerce. All right, Bill, well, wanted to visit with you a little bit. I see that a, a new University of Minnesota research report uh, that was released shows that the future strength of the state's economy is, is really, uh, I, I guess, important and depends on attracting and integrating international immigrants into the workforce. Can you tell us a little bit about this and why this is? Yes, that, that's correct. I, I think the situation that we find ourselves in today relative to our, our workforce is triggered by two important uh, series of events. The first is Minnesota is in the fortunate position of having a growing and changing economy. That change and growth is creating the need for workers at all different skill levels. That's the first series of events. The second series is the um, fact that our population is aging and our baby boomers who propelled much of the growth that we've had the last few decades are now getting ready to, uh, you know, to ride off into the sunset or to retire. And um, you put those two things together, a growing economy and a changing economy, along, <clears throat> along with the uh, retiring baby boomers, and we have a workforce 
shortage in Minnesota. And when you look at the our state's demographics, there isn't much record of domestic in-migration to Minnesota. Uh, there are some efforts around the, um, uh, to try and increase that, but all of the estimates that we see from the state demographer's office suggest that that domestic in-migration won't be enough to fully supply our changing and growing economy, hence the need for migrants from outside the U.S. And I want to emphasize that we need those migrants at every skill level, not just high skill, not just low skill, at every skill level. And Bill, does it concern you? I mean, obviously, um, immigration is really, a, um, as you said in your release, a hot-button political topic. Uh, do you think there's ways to work around this? I think, actually, I think the, the opportunity that the Minnesota economy has to change and therefore grow maybe puts the question surrounding uh, immigration and immigration reform in an entirely different light. Uh, maybe if we have a discussion about how immigrants contribute to our state's economy, maybe that, that acts as a bridge to bring Minnesotans who have very different views on this topic together and, 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 and unite around um, the need for federal immigration reform legislation as a means of growing our state's economy. And when we talk about growing uh, the state's economy, how, I guess, how brisk do we have to get new residents in here? Do we have any statistics on how many uh, numbers of new residents we need to attract? Sure. The the report uh, in, includes estimates um, uh, through, I believe, 2035. And what, we, what, what it shows is that, based on current demographics, the growth in our workforce basically comes to a, a standstill until you get to about 2035. That's when it starts to grow again based on the current population. And um, you, you couple that with a, a growing economy and then look at the fact that we're getting so few in-migrants from um, the other states. And, and what that does is, um, is drive you to the conclusion that, that immigrants from outside the U.S. are really, or I should say migrants from outside, outside the U.S. are really key to the, to the growth of the state's economy. And we're not talking about a few, a few hundred. We're really talking about you know, thousands of additional workers in order to propel our state's economic growth. Thanks again to my guest, Bill Blazer, with the Minnesota Chamber of Commerce. The full report can be found online at news.umn.edu. Back to you, Scott. Thank you, Tasha. Minnesota Matters will return after this. Last night, we put on an epic light show. Yeah, we did. The crowd loved us. We love the crowd. Wait, but there were only four people out there. Yeah, but did you see their four faces? All eight of their eyes lit up brighter than ours. <sighs> and we're fireflies. Yeah, we are. Hey, that one girl, she looked like she'd never seen glow in the dark like this before. And we invented glow in the dark. Yeah, we invented it. And we're going to be out here every night rocking out our light show at a forest near you. Woohoo! So come check us out. Check us out. 
And bring your kid all ages show. Oh, but uh, don't bring any of those glass jars because they make us kind of nervous. Yeah, and I'm super claustrophobic. Whether you're rocking their world or they're rocking yours, some memories never fade. Come alive with the forest. Visit discovertheforest.org to find a forest near you and discover other cool things to do when you go, like fishing, biking, or even camping. Visit discovertheforest.org. See you later. Yeah, see you soon. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. Planning for the 2019 NCAA Men's Basketball Final Four, which will be at U.S. Bank Stadium in downtown Minneapolis, is now headed into high gear. As we heard last week on Minnesota Matters, the local organizing committee opened a brand new downtown Minneapolis office earlier this month and began the final 28-month planning phase for the big event. We heard from the committee CEO Kate Mortensen on last week's program. For this week's show, MNN Sports Director Mike Grimm sat down with the woman who oversees the situation nationally. Mike Grimm now has more. Joanne Scott is the managing director of the NCAA men's basketball tournament. She's technically not part of the local organizing committee and, in fact, will be spending much of her time getting ready for the two Final Fours that will take place in other cities prior to the one happening at U.S. Bank Stadium in Minneapolis. But she certainly will provide guidance and counsel to the Minnesota organizers throughout the next two-plus years and says the local planners will need all 28 months to get ready. The longer you have, like I think anything you do, the more more I think you put you, you, the connections. So the more you can really sit and put thought into how you leverage everything that's already in place, then the more you can reach out and make it more of a community driven. So I think by having the different various groups and committees and, and uh, community groups involved in this, uh, definitely the school systems, then there's more opportunity when we come up with a new idea or we overlay and something we're already doing, then we already have this avenue of how we um, communicate out, other than just your normal mainstream media. I mean, getting the community to buy in it takes a long time especially with Super Bowl coming up so take me through to the process I know you're part of that uh, why is the city get picked what did you like about Minneapolis because it had been a while obviously the venue was in flux a little yeah. bit what what did you like about Minneapolis to, to give them the final four for 2019 back when that was decided about what was it four years ago yeah, now it was 2014 there was a long process yeah um, and the process took place in the fall of 14 uh, several cities bid um, uh, of course, the new venue is phenomenal, and that's always a big part of what we do because we're in all all stadiums like that. Um, but again, as I, I said earlier, the compactness, the downtown walkability, the public transportation um, for our coaches and our teams to be close and not have traffic issues and so forth, it, it was real ideal. That, and, you know, they just built a really strong team, very good local support. You know, they had a lot of the folk, uh, local uh, Fortune 500 companies on board um, and just... I would say a good all-in package, everything. They just really did and brought such pride and, vol- and of course, the volunteerism that takes place here. So they really, you know, they did st- they stood out on that one. What's a city that hosts, and again, it's been a while for Minnesota because the Metrodome had kind of been outdated for a Final Four and then we waited a while. But so, you know, not that it's a full generation, but let's say a half generation have, has not experienced this. What's a city uh, and a fan that's local experience when a Final Four comes to town? Yeah, that's what I think uh, you, you, you'll see is a big change. So we ideally, 
any fan would be walking down Nicolette Mall and see any Division One coach. And I think that's what's special about the Final Four. Our, our coaches, assistant coaches, head coaches, the NAB, our great partners, the National Association of Basketball Coaches, they're all here. And they're going to their convention. So you can be having lunch, dining next to, you know, a head coach that you have idolized all your life. Um, so that's one aspect. But I think the several events that we, we host a music festival, um, which is uh, three headliners. I mean, we've had Rihanna, we've had Taylor Swift. It's a little, you know, it's everywhere. And that's great for the local crowd. But the Fan Fest, I think, it gives everybody a good idea of autograph signings. Um, and it's uh, clinics for kids. And it's interactive. A lot on the NCAA sports could be, you could be fencing or you could be, you know, doing a lot of the NCAA sports that we highlight. So that's, you know, we do a dribble right now with about usually 3,000 kids that do a dribble just to get them acclimated to it. And hopefully we'll have some new programming by the time we get here. Uh, but a lot to offer, I think, and that's what I think um, people are going to be pleasantly surprised. Last one for you. I wanted to ask you about the University of Minnesota's kind of a host institution. What kind of role will they play? Obviously the Gopher fans hope maybe they play a role in the fact that their team could play in it. But outside of that, uh, administratively, what will the university have uh, in terms of uh, responsibilities or duties or how will it associate yeah. with this? A venue and, and Final Four. Yeah, we rely on, um, on Mark and Tom McGinnis a lot. You know, we were just talking about our logo launch. How should we do that? Should we align with their season? Should we align with Midnight Madness? Um, we rely on them on a lot of just like, hey, how do you, you know, like we're going to use their hotel on their campus, uh, you know, and who should we put there? Um, again, looking at these educational based maybe kind of programming, what can we do with University of Minnesota and some of the schools? We do a lot with curriculum as well. Um, I like to speak to a lot of classes, but we use a lot of sports marketing classes, but we like to use a lot of their classes to maybe take on some projects for us. We're a little different. We're education based. So we rely on them a lot. And, and not to mention, a couple, they'll be very heavily involved with the day-to-day. Uh, -day. That's Joanne Scott from the NCAA on Minnesota Matters. The last time the state of Minnesota hosted a men's basketball Final Four was back in 2001 at the old Metrodome. Scott? Thank you, Mike. That's going to do it for this week. Thank you for listening. Please tune in again next week for Minnesota Matters on this MNN station.